Yeah. Still in New Jersey. So. New Jersey has its charms. Yeah. Especially this time of year. All right. I just want to let us let people know we are live on both Zoom and Facebook. Um, if you are watching on either platform, please feel welcome to ask questions um, for ask questions for either of us, for either Rabbi, directed to Rabbi Zering or kind of general. Um, I will be monitoring both. Um, we are, this is the first session of what does the Torah say about modern economics? Uh, not what I want to. With, and we have the pleasure of once again learning with Rabbi Jonathan Zering um, in today's class. Um, he will explore broad questions that ask what the Torah has to say about economic systems. We will focus on topics like Yovel, pricing, competition, and other topics that ask how Torah can help engage us with the complexity of the modern market. Um, if you are, um, I'm not sure, Rabbi Zering, if you're going to be sharing sources on your screen. Uh, yeah, I'll share them on the. I'll share them on the screen. Okay, all right, that's good to know. And I am going to also just post a link to download sources in the chat. And with and and maybe like and. All right, and with that, it's a pleasure to learn with you. Um, I'm sending in one last point of housekeeping um, just before things get started. It's great to have people ask questions. It's great to hear and see you to the extent that people want to. But if you are not actively asking, speaking, can you please mute yourself? Otherwise we get weird audio feedback where we can do things like hear Rabbi Zering speak and also hear him speak through your screen, which is not always the best audio. And with that, good evening. Um, good okay. afternoon. What time is it by you? Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Kayla. Um, yeah, so the as, as Kayla mentioned, our goal for the next uh, few weeks um, is to discuss broad questions about what the Torah has to say um, about economics. Um, and by broad qu questions, um, I mean um, specifically, you know, today we're going to start really with the broadest question, which is does the Torah have a unique uh, economic model, um, and it, what what does that mean? Um, but we're also along the way, and you know, as you see in the title, I put modern in in brackets. Um, I want to deal with questions like, um, if the Torah has a unique vision of uh, of the economy, um, is that something that can only be realized in an ideal world, um, or a uh, a society in which the entire uh, fabric of society runs according to the Torah. Um, and in that sense, the Torah has a perspective on economics that's embedded within a broader system, but maybe it doesn't have insight um, that can be easily applied to a system in which um, the Torah isn't the overarching force in the economy. Uh, we're going to try to deal with some, uh, some of the differences that we find in halakha um, on economic issues between Jews and non-Jews and what that tells us about what the economic system means in a halakhic context. I um, mean, we'll see that primarily through the lens of rebate, of interest, uh, interest laws, um, which will be our topic after, after Yovel. Um, and I, I haven't decided fully what all the topics will be because I want to see how people's questions uh, go to see which angle we take at it. Um, but I also want to address questions like, uh, does the Torah necessarily um, believe that its halachot have to um, be applicable in all circumstances, or is it possible that we could have certain economic, certain quirks to our economic system that simply would make it that the halacha doesn't apply? And we'll see that, for example, in the laws of pricing um, and overcharging, where halacha clearly forbids overcharging. Um, but it's less clear on whether there has to be such a thing as a price. Um, and without such a thing as a price, um, there may be no practical way of implementing a law against uh, overcharging, even if it exists on the books. Um, so those are the types of broad questions that I want to uh, answer over the next few weeks. Um, but like I said, we will try to take the topics uh, in the direction that the, that the conversation um, takes us. But 
Um, the first question, which is I really think the biggest question we have to deal with is, do we believe not just, obviously there are certain economic issues that Allah has something to say about. That's obvious, right? Meaning if someone um, is engaged in a sale um, and they, um, they either break, uh, they break their agreement or they, or they might have broken their agreement. So Allah has localized things to say um, about each of those issues. And obviously, many, many, many things that we call, broadly speaking, economic issues, Allah has something to say. But before we deal with the nitty gritty, what I want to ask is, do we think that Halacha has, or the Torah, has a vision um, of overarching what is the economy aiming towards, or what does it do, or how does it work, um, that's fundamentally different um, than something that we might find uh, outside the Torah. Um, and the I think that the best um, candidate to suggest that the Torah does, in fact, is the laws um, of Yovel. Um, and what I want to do is, is look at the laws of Yovel, and we're going to, at least this week, speak in broad strokes. Um, and I want to talk about, does the, do the laws of Yovel tell us um, something about the vision of the Torah's economy? Um, specifically, again, we're talking in broad strokes, but is the Torah fundamentally, um, does it share certain qualities with, let's say, more socialist systems, with more capitalist systems? Um, or does Yovel some, offer something that cannot be uh, pigeonholed? into either of those overly broad descriptions of an economic system? And does it offer a different uh, way to approach the economy as a whole? Uh, so before we get into Yeovil, um, I just gave you here a few quotes um, of different thinkers, um, rabbis, not rabbis, economic thinkers, um, who tried to figure out, is it fair to call the Torah um, capitalist, socialist, um, or not? So I gave you in number one from Milton Friedman, who was one of the fathers of, of the modern understanding of, of capitalism. Um, and he very much thinks that the Torah is basically more or less just capitalist, right? And he writes that two traditions were at work in Israel, an ancient one going back nearly 2000 years of finding ways around governmental restrictions and a modern one going back a century of belief in democratic socialism and central planning. Fortunately for Israel, the first tradition has proved far more potent than the second, right? So Friedman just looks at it and he says, listen, if we divide the world into more socialist systems, which for him means economic systems in which there's government control, um, or more capitalist, which for him means more laissez-faire capitalist, without government control, while you can find both voices in Jewish history, the dominant voice, he just assumes, is the more laissez-faire capitalist system, and he celebrates that, right? So he just looks at it and he says, look, you can find both voices, but if I wanted to reduce the Torah to a system, it's more or less laissez-faire capitalism. Um, in number two, I give you a quote from Lichtenstein, from Warren Lichtenstein, uh, my late teacher, in an article he wrote about the responsibilities of the recipient of charity, um, where he notes that on the one hand, um, Obviously, the Torah very much believes in, um, in charity and has what might be called social welfare systems within it, um, which might lead you to believe, and at least in a Torah system, they are somewhat run by the government, right? They're not just private, um, right? They're mandated taxes that go to the poor, um, which we call miser, which we call tithes. So you could look at it and say, well, at least that aspect of socialism, um, or at least social welfare it has. Um, so maybe you'd say the Torah is more socialist. Um, and then Rebbe notes that that's not clear um, because, um, right, he says, if you look on the third line, he says, on the one hand, halacha's excessive valuation of chesed and of society's responsibility towards the needy brings him to support the expansion of aid, right? There are definitely voices in the Torah that point to the importance of aid, which you might interpret as social welfare, maybe. Um, but on the other hand, the more that this demand is based on the argument that aid must be expanded because psychosocial circumstances fetter the needy and prevent them from joining the workforce, it clashes with the emphasis that Judaism places upon free will, 
right? He notes, on the other hand, there are very strong sources that say that if a poor person chooses to not work as hard as they could, that maybe that exempts you from the obligation of tzedakah. Um, and he argues that that may be because the Torah values free will and people exercising their free will, and therefore we don't want to encourage people to take advantage of other people's generosity. Now, right, Rav is already complicating it, right? He's saying, look, you know, there are voices that if I wanted to, I could read it as quote-unquote socialist. And again, I understand I'm speaking in broad terms, and I understand that these terms mean different things in different places. Um, but in the sense that more socialist policies um, look towards more government support for the poor and less just sort of free reign um, of the market without the um, simultaneous helping of the poor. And again, you could have, right, you could distinguish between them, obviously, right? You could have a uh, system which in terms of the market is very free, but has generous um, social welfare programs. Theoretically, you could have a controlled market that does not do that. Um, but in terms of what people call socialism, right, there are voices within Torah that push towards at least social democratic welfare, um, and then voices that push against it. Um, now, I bring these quotes just to point out, and I gave you a few more, um, that, you know, there are people who look at it and say, well, what do we mean by capitalism? Does the Torah point in that direction? What do we mean by socialism? What do we mean by other terms? And then they just assume, at least some people do, that, well, the Torah um, supports um, one um, or the other. Um, and then there are others who note that, that there's a complexity. Um, I see that Noah asked here, right, who's government? Now, that's a very important question, right? And that's something that we'll have to deal with, which is, like I said, um, the first question we're going to deal with today is, does the Torah believe uh, have like a different fundamental vision of uh, economics? But the second is, even if it does, um, is that a vision of economics that can only exist um, in a world in which the Torah is the rule book for the rest of society? Also, does it make sense where there's another government, right? Does the Torah have something to say about that? And that's something we're going to have to talk about over the next um, few weeks. Um, now, I gave you in three, um, Eric Cohn, who is the executive director, um, something like that, of the Tikva Fund, which obviously is a more conservative bend, um, where he quotes um, Rabbi Sachs in the 1998 Hayek lecture, um, who argued that the Torah is more, has a greater affinity um, with uh, free market ideas um, and practices based on, um, you can see here, right, his answer includes such touchstones as biblical respect for the ideas of property rights, biblical appreciation for productive labor, the biblical understanding of man as a creative being, the rabbinic belief that parents must teach their children a useful trade, and the affirmative Jewish attitude towards wealth. In general, Rice, uh, Sachs concludes that Talmudic rabbis favored the free market, a point reinforced by the example of how they treated competition among scholars and teachers, right? So Rice Sachs, as is quoted here, said, well, if I take a bunch of different data points, then I could say that the Torah is more capitalist. Um, whereas regular student number four um, quotes, um, Yuval Levin as saying that at best what that proves is that Judaism is consistent with capitalism, but it doesn't necessarily advocate for it. Um, and you can read the rest of the of the quote yourself. But the, I bring these quotes simply to point out that, um, especially in the modern age where people like talking about these broad views of economics, um, and they use terms like capitalism and socialism a bit loosely, but to include all types of broad visions. Um, and people assume that the model that they adopt of what is the ideal economic system is not just a pragmatic choice, but it's an ethical choice. In a world like that, um, and as you know, it is still right after election day, people then attach those moral voices to political voices, um, people really want to look at the Torah and find support for, broadly speaking, their economic model. Um, and therefore, I think that if we want to begin the discussion of what can the Torah contribute to um, discussions about what a modern economy should look like, we need to really ask the question, um, 
is this really all we can do about Torah, which is say, um, well, it looks sort of like socialism here and it looks sort of like capitalism there. Um, maybe it's more capitalist, maybe it's more socialist, maybe it's a hybrid. Um, is that all we can do? Or is there something that the Torah says about the economy that's unique, that is not really um, either model? Um, and therefore, a true Torah perspective would ask us to rethink what we know um, or what we think we know about what an economic system uh, can entail. So that's my little introduction sort of to the type of questions that we're going to ask. Um, and as I said, Yovel is going to be our, um, our study for tonight. So we have to know historically is that as the Zionist movement began to get underway, Zionist thinkers in general started to, be, to think in uh, utopian ways, right? Israel, in their mind, was not just a country for the Jews, it was not just a return to the Jewish homeland, um, but for the early Zionists especially, it was a chance to create an ideal society. And therefore, the early Zionists tended to write, whether that's Herzl or Jabotinsky or others, but we're going to focus on those two today, um, they tended to speak in terms that weren't just pragmatic, but we're utopian, right? If I could create the ideal state, what would it look like? And considering the importance of economics to statehood, so many of those early Zionists started with the question of what would an ideal economic system look like? And despite the fact that neither Herzl nor Jabotinsky nor met many of the early Zionists were religious, um, they nevertheless, for whatever reason, felt compelled to look to the Torah specifically for their vision of economics. And pretty much across the board, they found the answers they were looking for in what an ideal Jewish economy would look like, specifically in the mitzvah of Yovel. So the mitzvah of Yovel, the Jubilee year, as we see in number six, is quite simple. Every seven years, we have a Shemitah, right? We have the sabbatical year, which primarily expresses itself in prohibitions on agriculture. Um, you're not allowed to work the land. At the end of Shemitah, we also waive all loans. Um, all debts are um, dissolved. And then every seven Shemitot, so every 50 years, we have the Yovel. In the Yovel, there are also limitations on agricultural work. But in addition to that, uh, in year 50, ancestral land, which as the Jews were given land when they left uh, Mitzrayim and they left Egypt and they went into Israel, the land was parceled out to that generation. Um, and then it subdivides based on the sons of the original heirs, those original um, inheritors of the land, um, if they sell the, their land, which they have the right to do at any point during the Yovel, with certain exceptions, like land that's in walled cities, when the Yovel hits, the land returns to its original owners. Right? That's one, um, one unique feature of Yovel. And the second is that slaves go free. Right? Slaves go free in Yovel, and that the the verse that tells us the slaves go free is famously what is on the Liberty Bell. Um, the notion that liberty uh, should be declared or proclaimed or whichever translation they have uh, throughout your land. Um, that also happens in Yovel. And that's what we have in number six. You shall sanctify the 50th year. And you shall call, proclaim liberty throughout the land. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each person shall return to its inheritance and to his family. And the land shall not be sold forever. Because the land belongs to God. Because you are mere sojourners with me. And that is the law of Yovel. Now, I don't know if it's because the Yovel is so dramatic 
right? That it literally verse, reverses any real estate deal made in the last 50 years. Um, I don't know if it's simply because of the fact that the Torah seems to build its economic system around Yovel, um, because you have this, you know, each mini cycle of seven years and then seven cycles of seven brings you the Yovel. And there is no system larger than that, which means that the Torah seems to be pointing to the centrality of Yovel. Um, I don't know if it's because of the poetic language <clears throat> that you have around these verses, the importance of liberty. I'm not sure what it is, but these verses and this law pique the interest of those early Zionists. And they said, if there is such a thing as a Jewish economic vision of the world, it is found in these verses, in this law. Um, now, what they thought this law told you is very different, but the fact that the secret to a Jewish economy is found in Yovel, that they seem to all agree on. So if you look, for example, in seven, so Herzl, Altunland, um, <coughs> um, takes the Yovel as the model of his, <coughs> sorry, of his economy in the land of Israel. And he writes, this is the middle of a long dialogue. What a question. It was a great blessing for all of us, returned Reshid. Naturally, the landowners gained most because they were able to sell to the Jewish society at high prices or to wait for higher, higher ones. I, for my part, sold my land to our new society because it was to my advantage to sell. Didn't you say a moment ago that those groves we passed were yours? To be sure, after I had sold them to the new society, I took them back on lease. Then you shouldn't have sold them in the first place, right? So you have this story, it's a dialogue, and they pass by these groves. And he says, wait, are they yours? Well, they were mine. But then I sold them to the new society, and then I leased it back from them, right? So at, in the past, there was individual ownership. And then we gave up on individual ownership in favor of collective ownership. And then we lease back the land to people with the recognition that no one really owns land. Right, so here the interlocutor says, but wait a second, if that's what you're gonna do, then you shouldn't have sold them in the first place. And he answers, but it was more advantageous for me. Since I wished to join the new society, I had to submit to its land regulations. Its members have no private property in land. So he says, well, then it doesn't belong to you. So what are you telling me it does belong to you? And he says, not the plot. I leased it only until the next Jubilee year as my friend Reshid did his groves. Jubilee year? Please explain that. I really seem to have overslept myself on that island. The Jubilee year, explained David, is not a new but an ancient institution set up by our teacher Moses. After seven times seven years, that is to say in the 50th year, Land which had been sold reverted back to its original owner without compensation. We indeed arrange it a bit differently. The land now reverts back to the new society. Moses in his day wished to distribute the land so as to, to ensure the ends of social justice. You will see that our methods serve the purpose nonetheless. The increases in land value <coughs> accrue not to the individual owner, but to the public. So here Herzl tells you, what is his vision? He says, look, Moshe in his time had this idea of Yovel. Yovel meant that you could never really serve, you could never really buy land, you could never really sell land. It was only leased. And then it went back to the original owner. Now you might look at Yovel and say, aha, so Yovel insists that there's such an idea of private property. In fact, it believes so deeply in private property that you can never be fully alienated from your private property forever. That looks, you know, I don't know, maybe capitalist, maybe. But Herzl looks at it and says, no, no, I see the opposite. This is socialism because the reason you returned it to the original owner was not to recognize the importance of individual ownership was to ensure social justice. And therefore, what Yovel tells us is that you really want an economic system in which buying and selling is not fundamentally about the good of the individual, but the good of society. 
And therefore, if I replace the original owner with society, and I say that instead of every 50 years, the property going back to the original owner, it goes back to the collective, since that serves social justice in the way that Yovel does, it is basically indistinguishable from Yovel. Right? That's Herzl's argument. So Herzl looks at Yovel and he says, Yovel is basically telling us um, that the Torah wants some sort of socialist system, which for him means that the purpose of the economy is not for individuals to increase their wealth, but the focus is society and everybody in society is beholden to that goal. And therefore, if we have to give up on the notion of individual ownership in order to ensure this social justice, so then that's what we're going to do. Right? And that is the vision that Herzl saw in Yovel, right? So, Yo so Herzl saw that Yovel tells us that the Torah has a unique vision, but for him, despite the fact that he understands there are some major tweaks he has to make to take Yovel from its biblical model to look basically like his um, socialist vision where individuals don't own land, they don't own the means of production, it's owned by society. Um, he basically thinks that you can tweak it and it's not that different from Yovel, right? It's not that different. So Yovel is not that different from socialism. Socialism is not that different from Yovel. And his conclusion is therefore, if I want to set up an ideal society, <clears throat> I should model it on Yovel. And what we mean by modeling it on Yovel is that I should basically make it as close to socialism as I can. Meaning I take away the means of production from the individual. I give it to society, in this case, land. And then everyone just leases it so no one really owns things, right? Now, that's quite an extreme vision um, where he denies private property. Um, he denies the importance of the individual being able to make money um, and focuses entirely on society. But that's what he sees in Yovel, despite the fact that he understands you have to tweak <coughs> the laws of Yovel as we have them to get to that conclusion, Um Um, so I have a question here. Did Herzl know that the rules of Yovel only go into effect if the majority of the Jewish population is living in the Holy Land? So I'm going to guess. So let me just explain that to people who didn't catch that. On a halachic level, um, the Gemara rules, the Talmud rules, that Yovel, the laws of Yovel don't apply unless only if the majority of the Jewish people are living in the land of Israel, specifically in their tribal territories. Otherwise, Yovel doesn't apply. Um, I assume, A, Herzl had no idea um, because Herzl was not um, a learned Jew in halacha. And B, I assume he didn't care because he was not um, committed to halacha. Um, so definitely, right, Herzl's view, as we'll see in just a second, is hard to read uh, in the verses to begin with. Um, but yes, it is definitely true that the more we go down into the details of Yovel halachically, the less and less uh, Herzl's vision is going to, to work. Um, okay, but like we saw before, right? Before we saw that Milton Friedman was basically happy to say, listen, the Torah has a little bit of uh, socialist voices in it, a little bit of capitalist voices. I'm not going to get too much into what that means, but basically Judaism is capitalist. It won out. So if you want to know what the Torah wants, you want to know what God wants, you want to know what Jews want, it's capitalism. That's it, right? That's Milton Friedman, right? Herzl goes to the opposite extreme and he says, look, uh, okay, it's not the exact same, but the most momentous economic moment in the Jewish, um, the Jewish cycle, cycle of time is Yovel. And, you know, I can tweak it and it's basically socialism. So let's come up with an idealized socialist vision, um, no private property, right? The collective owns the, the means of production. You only get to lease it from them. Everyone is just focused on society. No one's focused on their individual gains. Whatever you want to throw under the rubric of socialism, that's basically what the Torah believes. That's what, that's what Yovel is. And okay, there's some hints that maybe that's not exactly what the Torah said. Okay, I mean, whatever, the differences aren't important. Um, 
either way, right? You take it the Milton Friedman way, you take it the Herzl way. Um, basically, the answer is, does the Torah have something unique <coughs> to say about um, what an ideal economy should look like? The answer is, more or less, no. I mean, you know, it's it's more or less, I've decided that I'm a socialist, I've decided that I'm a capitalist, and now I'll take the Torah's data, I'll shove it in as I can, and I can say that Judaism supports me, but there's no attempt to look at it and say, is this somehow different? Is it somehow unique? Is it telling us something that I couldn't just figure out by reading my favorite um, economist and then, you know, shoehorning whatever in the Torah that doesn't work into that philosophy and saying, yeah, that's Torah. Um, yes. <laughs> It is true that people often do that with Torah, yes, um, that they decide in advance what their views should be, um, and then they figure out how Torah works into it. I agree. Um, uh, fascinatingly, the major Zionist thinker who looked at the Torah and at least tried to say, you know what, I want a Jewish economy. I want a Jewish economic society. Um, and I want to figure out what that looks like was Zev Jabotinsky, who also was not traditional, um, was among the least, less traditional, uh, even of some of the early Zionists. Um, and nevertheless, uh, Yovel um, captured his imagination. And his read of what Yovel is, <clears throat> um, well, you'll see, you'll tell me, I personally find it at least in broad strokes, and we'll talk about where, where it's not obvious, but in broad strokes, um, what strikes me as amazing about Jabotinsky is he recognized that the Torah has a unique vision, and that vision is not the same as socialism, however you understand it, and it's not the same as capitalism, however you understand it. And again, I know that I'm oversimplifying these words, but to be fair, that is what many people do when they talk about economics, right? Um, and as you saw in these quotes, right, that's basically what Herzl did, that's basically what Milton Friedman did, right? They oversimplify it, and whatever they put in capitalism, Whatever they want to believe is capitalism, well, that's what Torah is. Whatever, if they think socialism is better, then whatever they think socialism is, we'll figure out how Torah basically says that. Jabotinsky tries to look at it and say, listen, there's something unique going on here. Um, and if we want a Jewish economy, Yovel is something to teach us that is actually fundamentally different. So this is from an article he called Ha Yovel. <laughs> very aptly um, titled, The Yovel. Uh, in English, they translate here, The Jubilee, The Biblical Plan, plan for Extended uh, Expanded Ownership by Zev Jabotinsky. Um, and he writes as follows. I gave you a decent amount of uh, the quotes, but it's actually quite a long article. It's all available uh, online in, uh, in English and probably the original Yiddish, I think, uh, which I don't read. Um, <clears throat> So first, let me give you his thesis outside, and then we'll look at some of his quotes. So first, he tries to define his terms, which I will be honest, I appreciate, right? Because as we said, capitalism can mean whatever you want it to mean. Socialism can mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, but Jabotinsky tries to get at the heart of it, um, of what is like the common denominator between much of capitalist thought and much of socialist thought that will help us figure out where the Torah weighs in on this. So he argues that the key to understanding socialism is that it's prophylactic, right? That socialism in all its manifestations believes that in an ideal society, inequality should be avoided, right? Now that may not be 100% possible, but the bias is to prevent inequality from emerging. And therefore, the opposition it has to, in its extreme forms, to any form of private ownership. The insistence on social welfare for the purpose of bringing equality and not necessarily just basic subsistence. Right? Again, now, there are tweaks. There are people who believe more expansive versions of this and less expansive. But for him, the key to socialism is that the problems of inequality, the problems of poverty, whatever it might be, a socialist system 
of any variety is going to do its best to be prophylactic, to make sure that those problems never emerge in the first place. On the other hand, for him, the key to capitalism is that, again, in whatever form you take it, more extreme, less extreme, but the key for him to capitalism is that it doesn't, it allows the economy to run free, even knowing that that might create inequality. And if we're going to be honest, even if it's going to create problems, right? Meaning inequality is not itself a, right? You could say that's not a problem, right? But he says, look, capitalism is willing to err on the side of um, not controlling the economy, right? Definitely a laissez-faire capitalism, um, and come what may, right? That is, again, the bias of a free market capitalist, definitely in its extreme forms, society. He looks at both of these models, and he says... Yovel, and therefore the Torah's model of the economy is not this, and it's not that, right? So what's the difference? So here he writes, right before the, the end of A, he says, the Bible, well, or here, I'll go back one more line. The biblical plan has nothing in common with this prophylactic scheme, which prevents from the beginning any possibility of social inequality, exploitation, and economic competition. The Bible seeks to preserve economic liberty, but to reform it by certain limitations and antidotes. And now he says, so what is it? The Jubilee principle. The main difference between the biblical revolution and socialist revolutions is that the latter are supposed to occur once and for all. Right. So now he adds a second point. He says, if socialism is really about preventing inequality, then in theory, an ideal socialist revolution should only have to happen once. Because once it happens and it manages to set up the ideal economy, it will never need to interfere again. Because in theory, it's preventing inequality. It's preventing problems. But Jabotinsky says, but wait a second, the Torah is not like that. The Torah recognizes that whatever it's doing it needs to redo it every 50 years, which means that it recognizes that it can't just set something in order and never have to address the, the ramifications of economic activity again, right? The Jubilee revolution should occur at regular intervals. According to, according to plans based on the socialist ideal, a just distribution of land and measures of social justice in general will be set one day and admit no further changes. According to the biblical plan, economic life will preserve after the Jubilee full liberty for further changes. People will continue to make projects, to scheme, to struggle and compete. Some will become rich and some will become poor. Life will keep the character of an arena in which it is possible to lose or win, show initiative and fail or, or succeed. This economic liberty would have only two limitations. <clears throat> the first limitation, or rather an entire system of limitations, functions continuously. Work is prohibited one day a week, Shabbat. One must leave the corner of his field and the gleaning of his vineyards for the poor, right? There are certain taxes that always exist, payah, right? The corner of your field, the tithe will be paid, being holy unto the Lord. Translated into modern terminology, this means limiting and regulating the working hours. Generally, all legislation for employee protection all social security and progressive taxing. The other limitation, or rather antidote to economic liberalism is the Jubilee. It is as if a huge ax sweeps once in a while, like a storm over the forest of humanity and cuts down those treetops which have grown above the average. Debts are canceled. The impoverished gain, regains his property. The slave goes free. <clears throat> Balance is restored and the economic gain starts over again until the next upheaval. Jubilee versus social economics. One may ask whether the Jubilee system is better or worse than socialism, but let us shelf this question for the moment. At present, the important thing is to establish that the Jubilee is the very antithesis of socialism. 
The concept of repeated economic upheavals is an attempt to correct the ills of economic liberalism, not to forestall them. Quite on the contrary, this concept is clearly based on the conviction that free economic competition is one of the most powerful motivations in life. Let people struggle, lose, and win. It is only necessary to cushion the arena with soft grass so that whoever falls will not be too painfully injured. Right? So Jabotinsky comes and he says, listen, Yovel is not socialist because socialism believes that it is possible and desirable to set up an economic model in which inequality and problems are cut off from the beginning, even at the cost, as Jabotinsky has it, of discouraging people from striving. Because, you know, no matter how much they work, they're not going to get more. They're always going to have the same. That's socialism for him. Unfettered capitalism for him is you recognize the power of human drive, right? Very wealth of nations, right? Adam Smith's wealth of nations, that we, we understand the power of people's drive to better their own lives. And we understand that left to its own devices, that has a tremendous power to create wealth and to create good, to create good for the world. Jabotinsky says, we recognize that. But unfettered capitalism is to say, and therefore, come whatever ills that may from that, come whatever inequality, you know what? Just let it go. Just let it be. And Jabotinsky says, the Torah is telling you something different, which is, on the one hand, you cannot deny the power of letting people strive and letting people try to make their lives better economically and to work and to make money. You can't deny that. But you also can't deny the fact that that system, left to its own devices, will go crazy. It just will, because certain people are going to fall so far behind, they have no chance. Certain people are going to get so far ahead that the power that they can have over others, the power they have over the economy is just unbelievable uh, unbelievable, and just too much. <clears throat> so the Torah's unique um, contribution is, um, maybe we'll call it corrective capitalism. Um, I don't know, something like that, right? Is the idea that you take units of time and you say, listen, do what you want, but recognize that in a few years, we're going to reset the balance so that everyone has the opportunity to strive the same way you are right now. Honestly, I don't know why Jabotinsky didn't, doesn't talk as much about Shemitah and he only talks about Yovel, but you could say the same thing about Shemitah that he does about Yovel, right? Which is, listen, for seven years, people are going to be richer and people are going to be poorer and they're going to be people who lend money and they're people who need to borrow money. And that's life. And under normal circumstances, we expect that if people borrow money, they should pay it back. And if it's hard, okay, it's hard. But you borrow the money, you pay it back. But we recognize that after seven years, if someone can't pay it back, because it wasn't just a blip, it wasn't just a dip in their luck, but they had consistent bad luck for years. And at this point, if you make them pay back their loans, they're going to be a rut they can never get out of. So every seven years, we say, okay, start again. But even with that, we recognize that certain people, <clears throat> that's not going to be enough because, you know, even with waiving their loans, okay, so they don't owe money, but they might still be at zero and they still may need more money and they may need capital and they may need to sell their, their land. Um, and in the ancient world, that's where you produce things um, just to, for whatever, for food, for, um, for capital, for a business. And every 50 years, we say, okay, give it back right? You want to buy it, right? You want to be a huge real estate mogul for 50 years, right? You want to buy up a thousand ancestral plots and build apartment buildings and charge rent for the next 49 years and make a fortune. You're allowed to, but in 50 years from now, right? You're going to go from being the CEO of a, you know, this real estate company that owns a thousand apartment built complexes to being someone who may have the money in the bank from a 49 years of 
you know, a thousand apartment building complexes, which admittedly is probably a lot of money. Um, but that land is not yours by the end. You can't own it forever. Um, and the that poor person is now going to get this land land back, right? And now they want to, so they can become the landlord and they can rent out the property. Um, and this is what Jabotinsky sees in Yovel, right? An attempt to, on the one hand, recognize that there is a deep power to letting people strive and letting people make money and not to cut them off and say, you have to be the same as everybody else and you have to work for the collective only. There's a power that we can't deny to letting people work for their, for their own betterment. On the other hand, we can't deny that once you let everyone do that, some people are gonna be lucky and some people are gonna be unlucky. And some people are gonna be so unlucky that if you don't help them out, they're never gonna get out of it. And some people are gonna be so lucky that if you don't rein them in, rein them in a little bit, their power is gonna be unimaginable. And that's what he sees in Yovel, right? And then he says, and this is like very, uh, you know, he says, if I were a king, I would reform my kingdom on the basis of the Jubilee concept rather than socialism. Of course, first I would have to find wise counselors and charge them with preparing a detailed plan on the basis of biblical indication. The ancient, inflexible, childish formulation cannot be carried out in our complex life. So in case I gave you this paragraph, just in case you were wondering, whether Jabotinsky said this because he's was a religious Jew. He's not. He calls the Torah childish, <clears throat> right? He doesn't, he's not saying this because, you know, he's a from Jew and he looks at it and says, ah, God must be right. And now let me figure out why God is right. He legitimately thinks that there's something unique about Yovel. And therefore in the next paragraph, he says, but I'm no king. On the contrary, I'm a child of that class whose very name has become an object of scorn, the bourgeoisie. I believe not only that the capitalist system is inherently stable, but that it contains the seeds of a certain social ideal. Ideal in its usual connotation, i.e. a vision worth dreaming of and fighting for. Nevertheless, I believe that a new Marx will arrive and write three volumes on its ideology. And maybe they will not be called Das Kapital, but the Jubilee. Right. So here, Jabotinsky tells you that, look, there is something in Yovel that is unique. Right. It's not socialism, but it's also not capitalism as it's being practiced. It has certain insights that are compatible with capitalism, but fundamentally, if you really took Yovel seriously, the Torah would be able to contribute a unique, holistic economic vision to the world. Now, again, we can quibble on exactly what that model is, right? But I think what you see from Jabotinsky, and it and I do find his overall overarching claim compelling, namely that the Torah's economic vision actually has something different to contribute, right? It has something different to contribute to, um, um, so uh, Jonathan here asks, do any of the scholars who studied the Jubilee year remark that it, be it works best in agrarian societies um, and not industrious ones? So, Yes, and we're we're going to come back to this question, right? Which is, um, again, one of my other broad questions, which is okay, right? The question for tonight, if we now summarize for a second, is: in an ideal world, does the Torah offer something unique? Um, does it propose a unique economic vision? Um, and I find at least Jabotinsky's overarching argument, whether you agree with every detail in it but his overarching argument that Yovel is something different than what we find in other systems. Um, it's just fundamentally different. <clears throat> I find that compelling. I happen to also find his idea compelling that the fact that we set it up, now he doesn't talk about Shemitah, but like I said, once you add Shemitah into the mix, his general claim is even more powerful, right? The idea that we have short periods of time where we allow people to pursue wealth with certain limitations, right? You know, he adds, and we'll come back to some of these, Shabbat and certain tithes and the like. But fundamentally, we let people borrow money, lend money, and sell land and the like. But periodically, every seven years, and then even more dramatically, every 50, we reset parts of the system 
to rein in the excess, right? The ideal that we, that the Torah's vision is that we have to allow people to work and buy and sell and do what they want to do while recognizing that comes with costs that have to be fixed. That general idea that there's a attempt to, on the one hand, recognize the power of giving people the um, motivation that to work for their own betterment while recognizing that that can cause problems and that we need to find a way to balance that, right? Which again, something like what he would have is like corrective capitalism. Um, that I find to be very, very compelling. And I, I quickly want to show you, um, and it may be, I, I wasn't sure if Yovo would take us one or two weeks. So we'll see. It looks like it'll take two. Um, but if you look at nine, this is an article by Errol Siegel, um, a partial list from his, the idea that Yovel had something unique to tell us and a Jewish society that wanted to be true to its Jewish roots in every part of society, including the, the economy, should take Yovel seriously. Um, it's not just that Jabotinsky <coughs> writes this and, Her and Herzl writes it. Um, all the early Zionists and some of the laws that we have until today in Israel incorporate this insight um, into their vision or the law that we have. So here's a list, right? So we saw that for Herzl, he proposed that Israel simply be completely socialist with the new society, right? The public body called the new society and all land will be owned by that. That was what Herzl wanted. That was his version of quote unquote, Yovel. Jabotinsky, um, as we noted, said no, right? It's a 50 year reset button. Okay. Number three, Rivdov Rosen, 1914 to 1989, suggested that um, his version of Yovel was that there should be 100% inheritance tax on all kinds of property. He claimed that in this way, every citizen fulfills the commandment of Jubilee, not once in 50 years, but once in a lifetime when he dies. He claimed that all property belongs to society and leased to the citizens for a lifetime. So when a person dies, he must return all property to the society. In Israel, inheritance tax of less than 100% was levied since 1950, but it was abolished in 1981, right? So Rev. Dov Rosen said, aha, right? That you can see that this is some combination of Herzl and some other ideas, right? He shares with Herzl the idea that Yeovil is about not believing you own land yourself, but rather society owning land. Um, but two, um, he therefore thinks that everyone should do it, but once a lifetime and inherit when, when you die and you inherit. Now, I'll be honest, that doesn't resonate with me as a vision of Yovel, but you see that he's trying, right? He's, he's trying to sort of manifest it in a modern way. And this may come to Jonathan's point before, which is Yovel can't mean the exact same thing in a non-agrarian society. So for Ravdov Rosen, his answer was, aha, well, in the agrarian society, basically what you owned was your land. So in a modern society, it's just everything you own. Um, now, again, it's still the opposite of Yovel because in Yovel, it went back to the original owners and here it goes away from the original owners. So um, it's still very different, but it is an attempt to, uh, to um, reflect that. Um, probably the most important that only when I researched this topic for the first time that I ever discover this um, is that until today, uh, most land that you buy in this country, um, you do not own. Um, like my house, I do not technically own my house. I lease it from the government. It is owned by the Israel Land Administration law, right? By the Israel Land Admi Administration, um, right? By Kakal. It is, that is the reality. Um, I did not know that this was apparently inspired by Herzl's version of of Yovel in Altunland, right? The idea that fundamentally you shouldn't own land forever and therefore whatever it says in my property deed, but I own my house or the land that my house is on for like 98 years, I think, 99 years. Um, at some point it actually was 49 years, but it no longer is 49 years, uh, I believe. I, I, I think at some point I looked at my contract for my house, it's not 49 years, it's either 98 or 99. Forget if they did twice Yovel and did 98 or they did um, just 99 because I don't know. Um, I don't know why 99. 
Um, but you actually see that the vision that Herzl said actually gets met, that actually is part of Israeli law. And there's very little land in Israel that you can actually buy straight out. <clears throat> um, and then you have here a bunch, uh, you know, several more su suggestions. You have Dr. Yitzchak Chayutman, who uh, extended the Jabotinsky suggestion to include um, Palestinian refugees. Uh, you see Yoav Rubin, um, who, who gave a different version of inheritance tax. Ruvyakov Ariel um, suggests that we should have Yovel, but going back to Jonathan's point before, um, we shouldn't have Yovel only on land because land, it doesn't mean what it did in the past. Land for Rubiaco Ariel is basically another way of saying the means of production. Um, and therefore he says that every 50 years, we should return the means of production to somebody, um, to whatever, um, though he doesn't explain uh, how. Um, I, I see a question, but let me give you just one modern attempt to really grapple with a lot of what we've been saying, that on the one hand, recognize that the Yovel provides insight into a unique economic model. Two, recognizing Jonathan's point that our Yovel worked fundamentally in an agrarian society and our society isn't agrarian. Um, with that conviction that nevertheless, Yovel should have something to say, not just about the biblical society, but modern economics also. Um, so Revelazar Malamud, who is among the most prominent post in Israel, despite all the controversy re recently, which, if anything, proves how influential uh, he is with his Pinine Halacha series. Um, you know, general rule in life, if you want to be really influential, write really good books that are really clear, translate them in 20 languages, and then make a kid's version that's extremely clear with pictures so that people start reading when they're five, right? This is just like, you know, you can see his vision of Yovel and Shemitah is included in his kids' Pinini Halacha series. So my kids have been reading it since they were literally five years old. So if you want to be influential, that's the way to do it. Um, so Rav Malamud was asked a few years ago um, before they actually settled the natural gas question, which is how should Israel take advantage of natural gas? Who should own it? Should society own it? Should the people who <coughs> actually did the work in excavating own it? Um, so basically, he without quoting Jabotinsky, basically quotes Jabot, basically suggests Jabotinsky's model, which is that um, the Torah believes in some sort of corrective capitalism. He takes Jonathan's critique, which is, but if you want to apply Yovel in the modern times, you can't just talk about land, right? You have to recognize that um, land used to be the means of production. So a modern Yovel would have to focus on all means of production. Um, he does recognize that uh, Yovel is fundamentally about things going back to the individual and not the collective, but in this case, that's hard. Um, so his compromise is the following. Um, perhaps a further suggestion could be made that just as in the Yovel, the fields returned to their original owners and slaves were released to their homes in a similar fashion, Torah scholars should possibly conduct an in-depth examination of the structure of modern economy and consider whether it is appropriate that in the Yovel year, a certain percentage of the accumulated wealth be divided equally. For in addition to laws designated to prevent monopolies, which harm free competition and stifle industry and trade, we should also avoid creating overly large ga gaps between the extremely rich and the remainder of the population. This idea also includes a measure of justice because well-run public organizations allow the major capitalists to become wealthy, and therefore maybe it is fitting for once in 50 years a portion of their accumulated wealth be once again distributed for education and public needs. Right? That's his very interesting right, compromise. He says, what is the modern equivalent of giving people back their means of production? Education, right? Education and public needs. That's the modern equivalent of land. Um, and therefore, he says, if you want to take Yovel seriously, that's what you should do. Now, okay. Because I don't want to rush, and I think there's more to say in Yovel, I was, wasn't sure if we would do this, but okay, we'll do this. Um, is We'll come back to Yovel next week, but just to quickly summarize, what we've seen today is the following, right? My major question is, does the Torah have a unique vision for the economy? Many thinkers think the answer is not really, right? 
It's just that the Torah has a vision and it happens to work with mine and I'll take the Torah and put it behind it. Herzl thought it was socialism. Milton Friedman thinks it's capitalism. And then there are the thinkers who say, no, you know what? There's actually something unique here. That the Torah being a system that wants to create the best society, part of that is economics. And it actually is something unique. So Jabotinsky's suggestion is some sort of corrective capitalism, which again, we could quibble. But fundamentally, his belief is that the Torah doesn't just conform to the systems that we know, but actually, if we studied it, it would tell us something unique. It would tell us that to be Jewish and to have a Jewish society would suggest creating a uniquely Jewish economy. And for him, Yovel is the key, but not exclusively. What we've already seen very quickly is that this idea was very influential, and there were attempts to actually implement some version of it into um, Israeli society. And we just saw um, Rev Malamud, who really tries to, to take the next step, um, which is <coughs> um, if this is true, is it this only true in? a completely Jewish agrarian society that matches that of Torah? Or does the idea that the Torah has a unique economic model, can that somehow be implemented in a modern economy where things don't look exactly like um, they did in the time of the Torah? And for that, Rav Malamud says it can, but it requires some creativity. So what I want to return to next week um, is dig a little bit deeper into this idea Right, that on the one hand, Yovel is something unique to offer, but on the other hand, we need to translate that a little bit differently in the modern economy to be true to its um, ideals. Um, the second question that I want to deal with next week is um, we've gone through this entire discussion without talking about God. <laughs> is that a problem? Right, because what everyone in this discussion, even if Malamud, amazingly, um, has been assuming is that the laws of Yovel and the unique um, economic insights of Yovel fundamentally are economic insights and not theological ones, and therefore hold equally true even in a non-theologically driven society. That is something I want to return to next week, and also um, look a little bit at the ancient Near East context from a piece by uh, Professor Joshua Berman to show how um, also, historically, it seems to be that the Yovel is suggesting something unique, but not by itself. Um, so that's what we can do next week. I see we have one more question. Uh, is it possible that the basic law version of Yovel also owes a debt, uh, a de a debt to mandate era British leasehold laws? Probably. Um, Israeli law is some weird combination of Jewish law, British law, and Ottoman law, and random other stuff. Um, so it's probably not only Yovel. Um, okay, but that is so next week we'll return to Yovel. And again, focus on the question of, is it really possible to translate this into a modern economy? Two, is, is it legitimate to translate the lessons of Yovel um, in purely economic terms while leaving out the theological component? And three, um, look at Yovel a little bit broader with some of the other laws that work with it, and specifically look at the ancient Near, Near East context to see how Yovel really does seem to have been contributing something unique, um, but to understand what that was unique, not just in light of modern economics, but in light of ancient economics using uh, Professor Berman's analysis, that will take us to the end of next week. And then week three, we'll probably move to interest laws um, and focus on uh, cases in which there's a difference between Jews and non-Jews and what that tells us about the economy. Um, okay, um, any questions in general, you should know you are free to email me um, or WhatsApp me um, to follow up with things. Um, and especially, you know, now, like I said, I haven't, because I know this is a complicated topic, I haven't mapped out all the weeks so that if like today, it turns out we need two weeks for a topic to do it properly, then we'll do that. Um, and if people's questions lead us in a different direction, that's fine. Uh, that's fine too. Um, Kayla, any announcements? Any? Uh... Uh, yes, just like one announcement. We have more classes coming up as part of this fall. This fall's run. The next class will be starting uh, quite soon at... 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Women in Rabbinic Law and, Narr and Narrative with Dr. Shana Shef. And source sheets, keep an eye in your inbox for source sheets for subsequent classes. 
they'll come and you know and just and also uh Zarin, if people want to get in touch with you by email with questions what email should they reach out to oh, wait, is my email not on the source sheet i usually put it at the top but did i forget oh no it's there it's uh, at the top it of the source sheet. okay um yes my email is always on the top of the source sheets um if whatsapp is better you can email me and i'll give you my whatsapp but then i'm not going to put on a recording on uh <laughs> um yeah all right um okay thank you will thank you everyone looking forward to next week with a little more time spent on yoel and thank you to rabbi Zirin for this interesting class see, okay. every, hope to see everyone thank next you week so much. okay see you next week take care